I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Deborah Blythe. Debbie is a Chief Information Security Officer of the State of Colorado Governor's Office of Information Technology. In August 2014, Debbie became the state's new CISO, bringing a diverse 25-year technology background, including 14 years of information security experience, to the state role. As a CISO, she serves as the point of contact for all information security initiatives in Colorado, informing the Secretary of Technology and Chief Information Officer and Executive Agency Leadership on security risks and impacts of policy and management decisions on IT-related initiatives. Before joining the state of Colorado, Debbie led the Information Technology Security and Compliance Programs at Teletech and Travelport. In this episode, we discuss her start in IT and her passion for technology, changes from the board in C-suite, the CDOT attack, the importance of having an IR plan in place, leveraging change management for security, managing priorities, cloud security, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Debbie, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Well, great. You know, we were just talking that the year is already flying by. It sure is. And, uh, you know, I think you had a little bit of a long year last year with a lot going on, which we'll, we'll kind of get to. But kind of uh, tell listeners a little bit more about your role here in what you're doing. Sure. So I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for the state of Colorado. Um, So I basically provide security strategy and all of the security services for 17 executive branch agencies of government. It's a little bit like running a security program for 17 different companies all at the same time. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) It is. It is. How did you, what was your kind of journey into it? Were you more on the risk management side, IT side, compliance? How did you end up where you are today. Yeah, so I was definitely IT. Um, So my journey started 25 plus years ago in IT. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but loved technology. Um, So I was a mainframe tape operator. I was an automation specialist. I worked in network. Um, I ended up in the Unix system administration team. And one day, um, our company, after a couple of days of firewall outages, discovered that they were really Unix under the covers mm-hmm. and kind of dumped them over into the Unix system administration team. And I, you know, assumed responsibility for those firewalls. And I thought, that sounds kind of important. And so I went to the bookstore. I bought every book they had on firewalls, which at the time was two. So that's <laughs> how long ago that was. Um, and read them cover to cover and really kind of found my passion in security. And that was in the year 2000. So I've been doing security for 18, a little over 18 years now, um, and really said at that time that I wanted to go do security. That was what I wanted to build my career on and never go back because I love it that much. Did, did you think of it as security at that time, or was it still more network operations? Or what, what was the kind of terminology you were using 18 years ago? Yeah, so I was like a firewall engineer, um, and that was kind of my part-time job because I was an automation specialist and a firewall engineer. Um, and then I transferred 
transferred into what was the information security department. And so this was a group of folks who were doing mainly um, um, like building user IDs and doing logical access. Um, and so I went into that group and brought the firewalls with me, and it was kind of the first foray into network security in that team. Um, but yeah, we called it information security, and it wasn't really a career discipline at that time. So it's not something I could have gone to school for. Um, my boss, when I said, you know, they eventually promoted me, and I was a manager, and then I was a senior manager, and I said, I think I should be a director. I think I should have a little bit more authority running this program because, um, you know, the people that I'm interacting with are vice presidents, and so it'd be helpful if I had a little more authority. And he said, no, you know, you're as high as you're ever going to go in this field. If you want to be a director, you're going to have to switch to something else. <laughs> Did he give you any guidance on what that would be, or was it just... Yeah, he said, you know, there's a director of internal audit position you might be interested in. And I said, that is a whole different discipline that I am not interested in. <laughs> but we're, was, you know, one of the things that we see now certainly is, you know, is the unsexy terms that we discuss when we talk information security is its risk management. <laughs> Yes. Well, as at that time, was it still being kind of bifurcated out to point and saying, well, that's just IT. Yes. It's not, we're not discussing in the global risk management of the organization. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because I remember when I went to, you know, the equivalent of the chief customer officer and said, you know, here's something our customers are asking for that we should be thinking about, which was PCI compliance at the time. And he looked at me and said, wait, 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 you're the IT security manager. You better go talk to someone in IT about that. Um, so yeah, it was not looked at as business risk, business value. It was looked at as strictly an IT thing. Go make it happen. So, you know, and, and we still struggle with that a little bit today, but what, what are, I think, some of the changes that you've really seen that that you don't get too jaded in our industry after this many years and say, well, there, there is progress, there is change, the language is changing. What, what are the things that, that you see that are progressive? Yeah, there's a couple of things. One is um, equivalence of CEOs and boards. Um, they want to talk to the chief information security officer. They want to know who is running security, what is the plan, what is the program. They may not understand it, but they want to know that we're progressing. They're also saying things like, how can I help? What do you need from me? Which is something we never heard. You know, if you go back a decade or so, man, no one ever wanted to give you money. Yeah. Um, and now in, in my world, in state government, the equivalent of the board and the CEO would be like the governor and the legislators. Um, and they want to hear from me. They want, you know, they want me to come forward, tell them what we're doing. They want to figure out how they can fund my program. Um, so that's one of the things. The other thing is that even just all of our employees, um, and maybe we're special here at the Office of Information Technology, I don't know, but... Um, I was just in a strategy session a few minutes ago, and um, the strategy department was conducting sort of a strategy session um, in Pueblo with a bunch of desk side personnel who said, um, it, you know, they said, what are your thoughts about the security? You know, are there some goals that we should be thinking about about security? And they said, hey, we are security. We do security. And so I just loved that coming from a team that wouldn't necessarily be, you know, considered part of the security team proper. They consider themselves part of the security team. Yeah, it's that thing where we always say, you know, security is everybody's, everybody's job. Everybody's job. <laughs> yeah. And it was just so awesome 
them to hear from real boots on the ground that they consider it their job. Yeah, I think it, it's starting to filter down now more. You know, we see both, I'm sure you've seen this in, in government side, but in private side, that everybody has this, this touch point or sensitivity with it. Yes. organizationally and even personally with so many of the large data breaches. But can you maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that you experienced last year that was a little bit, you know, it's unfortunate and newsworthy, but it's like, what do you learn from that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, last year, exactly one year ago. So God, it is a year, right? February <laughs> of 2018. Yes. Um, the Colorado Department of Transportation or CDOT was hit with the SamSam ransomware malware variant Um and it crippled the Colorado Department of Transportation's business operations um, because it infected almost 1,300 workstations, almost 400 servers. Every single, it halted every single application, every single database. Um, all of these were just encrypted. And so, if you can imagine day one, you know, hundreds of calls to our support desk with individuals who had a pop-up message on their computer saying, all your files are encrypted, and if you want them back, to pay the Bitcoin. And so they're calling. Um, CDOT issued an all-caps email to all employees saying, turn off your computers. Um, we, you know, so it was a large-scale response, and we put in a lot of hours. You know, obviously it was priority one. We actually ended up um, engaging state emergency operations. Now, this is the team that normally deals with fires and floods and extreme weather events and other types of events. And it turns out that the methodology they use for fires and floods actually works really well for cyber as well. Um, and so they came on site. We were able to issue, in fact, we're the first state in the nation ever to have issued a state emergency based on a cyber event. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what got us state emergency operations. That got us the National Guard, and that's the whole reason we did it, is because twice a year we do cyber exercises with the Colorado National Guard. And so we have those relationships. We know what their capabilities are. Um, So we said, you know, immediately when we realized we were overwhelmed and we needed assistance, we called in, you know, we activated this emergency so we could get the National Guard. They came on site and helped us create a battle plan. Um, We spent two weeks containing and eradicating the malware and then two weeks restoring CDOT to about 80% functionality. So for us, it you know, at the time, it seemed like a horrible event. But when you look back, it was actually very, very successful. And we kind of look at there's two specific things that really helped us. Um, one is we had good network segmentation. So it was limited to CDOT's business operations. It never bled over into traffic ops. It never became a life safety issue. Um, it also did not run rampant through the state. So it never affected any other state agency. It was very much contained. Um The second thing that helped us is that the legislature had approved a project a couple years earlier called Backup Colorado, and we had um, implemented an enterprise backup system that was offline backups um, that was across every single state agency. We were 100% confident that we had captured all servers, all production data, and that we could restore. And so, you know, paying the ransom was never a consideration. Um, And I think before the CDOT incident, a lot of folks did pay the ransom. I think after the CDOT incident, I think we set a precedent that, hey, you don't have to pay the ransom to recover from this. Um, And so that was, you know, those are the two things that, you know, I think were part of our good news story in that event. I think there was, I mean, look, I mean, it, it, 
when we talk about incident response, and I've actually worked a number of Sam Sam cases where they have had to pay, where it has yeah. been debilitating. Um, there's certainly news stories where even local companies or other companies uh, nationally have gone out of business because they just can't yeah. recover. So it's scary to think that. But you know, you kind of you hit on some some key things there that we always do in our, our uh, post remediation lessons learned phase is say, look, you know. What, what works? Good old-fashioned network segmentation, yes. backups, having a plan, having yeah. those relationships before. It's like when I go in and I train people on IR planning and build their plans, I'm like, call call a friend early. You know, Make sure you have yes. those those things. And it's, it's good to see those things executed because I think what happens in a lot of situations, there probably are other success stories, but nobody hears about them because right. they don't go public. So everybody yeah. thinks, oh my God, what happened? It's like, no, there's, there's good out of this. Yes. Because uh, we, yes. Uh, unfortunately, we, when, when most of the time when, when I get called in, it's, uh, it's when they, they haven't been able to restore. Yeah. And so we never, we never hear about that. So that, that was yeah. great. And it's, so, I mean, I guess besides some of the lessons learned that, that, that I mentioned, what would be some of the other things that you would advise, not only maybe state agencies, but really anybody in these situations that, because we're all going to have some event, yeah. whether it be ransomware, yes. network intrusion, whether it be bad insider, something's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned a couple of things. One is having a plan in place. So at the very minimum, when everything hits the fan, you want to be able to get out some piece of paper <laughs> that says, you know, step one, do this. Yeah. Step two, do this. Because that brings some semblance of control, yeah. you know. And so it feels like everything's spinning out of control, but you can take control over what you can. You can at least go start notifying the right people. Mm -hmm. You can start going through your action plan. And of course, your plan is never going to be 100%. It's never going to account for every scenario. But you can always update and add to it. And we did. I mean, we updated it twice after the CDOT incident, once with things we learned, and then second with, you know, things that we had another incident that was smaller, turned out to be nothing really, but it was a great opportunity to get out the plan, step through it and find some holes again. Mm -hmm. um, but at least if you can say to your leadership, hey, I'm following the plan, we're at this step in the plan, we're, you know, we're in this phase, um, then that gives them some comfort too. Um, so that's one of them. Another one is definitely have those relationships because if you can't phone a friend and you feel like you're in this all by yourself, you're going to go completely crazy. Um, and so you have to be able to kind of have a relationship where you can reach out and call somebody. And I'll tell you what, we leveraged a lot of folks during this. I mean, I called over to the Department of State, Secretary of State's office, and said, you know, hey, we discovered a type of firewall in this environment that we don't have expertise on. Do you guys? And can you send someone? And I don't know how we could pay, so can they volunteer? And we contacted our vendors, and we contacted a lot of folks, and we had people show up on site who actually helped give their time mm -hmm. just so they could help bring us back to operational status. I remember I remember what was going on, and you know, we talked about some of the local community and, and some of the Slack channels and just people reaching out. Yeah. I, I remember seeing that and there was just some chatter on the lines and I, I'd been contacted at least privately on a couple of things to, Hey, have you had experience? I was like, yeah, if there's anything they need and like, well, we can't pay. Yeah. I was like, don't care. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a resident in the state. If you need, need me, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in my hat. So I think that's, yeah. that's a great thing. It's part of the community building too, which is, yeah. you know, it's one of the reasons that actually drew me out to Colorado, but have you found that in general, the cybersecurity community in Denver is as great as we've all said it is? 
I totally believe it is because I've found my peers being very open and forthcoming with information. So, you know, we're not, I mean, and Rob has said this before, we are not in competition with one another. You know, our businesses may be competitors, but when we come together as security folks and sit down and have a security conversation we leave those, you know, competition at the door and we we talk very openly with one another about, you know, what are you doing in your program and what can I learn from your successes and failures that I can incorporate into my program that'll put me that much further ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I have really found that you can pick up the phone and call any of your peers and um, they'll just be very, very open with you. And people will come. I mean, you know, Chief Information Security Officer for the Secretary of State's office came over. He said, I don't know if I can help with your firewalls, but I'm sure I can do something, you know, and sat down in the room full of us and rolled up his sleeves and said, and this was like on a Sunday. (laughs) Well, one of the things too, we always try to coach people too in in those situations when, when everything is kind of going haywire and it's almost the way I look at it too. It's like, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, your spouse calls and says, by the way, 30 people are coming over for dinner. Can you cook? And it's like, you can either panic or you say, okay, I got a recipe books. It's not going to be perfect, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to get, so, I'm going to get something going. At least I have some checklists. But the one thing is, I would say is like, also don't start playing the blame game right out of the gate. Like why, who did this? Why did this happen? Yeah. How did you navigate that? Particularly when it's something that's so public where people then get frustrated and then just almost want to demand to know. Yeah, that's a hard one because they, you know, we've we've encountered a few incidents where they want to know, leadership wants to know who did it and why, you know? And so we try to you want to shelter that a little bit because we don't know the reason why the person, you know, if it's a person or, you know, the group or whatever did what they did until we really look into that. And so we kind of shelter that. And, you know, we had to identify, hey, it was us. It was OIT. It was not CDOT that did it. We did this. Um, And so we have to be all in to respond. And we just remind one another, our number one priority is getting the business back up and operational. We will investigate all of that later. We will figure out who what, why, we'll figure out what remediation, what needs to occur next. Um, We'll put processes in place to make sure it doesn't happen again or controls or whatever else. Um, But right now, we just had to remind ourselves our number one goal is getting CEDAW operational again. Yeah, I think that's that's always the message. We'll get back to that later. Restore operations. Yes. How do we get the meantime to restore backup? Yeah. (laughs) Do it next time. Uh, what are you know some of the other challenges too when you're building a program at a you know government agency versus um, you know private sector and what are some yeah. of the things that are common too? Yeah, so one of the things that um, that I've found that we really struggle with here is that our resources and I know this is true of everybody, um, but I'll describe it from from a state agency perspective because we are the IT service. Um, organization for 17 executive branch agencies. We're basically doing, um, you know, keeping the business running for 17 agencies, plus all of the projects that they have in flight. Um, So it's, you know, I don't know how many servers, it's probably something like 3,000 servers, but it's 1,200 active projects. Um, And so, you know, if you think about the maintenance on 3,000 servers, plus 
then you think about all of the innovation and all of the progression that's occurring with 1,200 active projects, there are just very few, if any, cycles left. And so when I first came here, even things like patching servers wasn't getting done because there just was no cycles for that, and it hadn't been set as a priority. Well, we've... we've um, made great improvements in that area. I'm really pleased with how we're patching and doing routine maintenance. Um, but still, when I think about, okay, now I've got five security projects I want to do, and I'm trying to layer those on top of the regular maintenance plus the 1,200 active projects, and now I throw in five security projects, our resources are just stretched too thin. And so my security projects, even though they're a number one priority, so are all those projects for all of those agencies. And so we're just, we're time slicing in too small of chunks, and so we're not getting the security projects implemented fast enough. And that's what I really discovered was, you know, when the CDOT incident hit, I realized that having a great project plan and making prog progress towards those security implementations give me no value when it comes to an incident, <laughs> yeah, right? right. <laughs> um, and so that's really the hardest thing is just um, having enough resources to make enough progress quickly on the security projects that we all know we need to get done. Um, and I know I experienced that some in the private sector too, sure. but I don't think it was like this. I mean, I think we had more in the private sector, we had more control over the projects that we were doing because it wasn't, you know, 17 different businesses layering them on to us. Yeah. It was we as a company deciding strategically about what projects we're going to do. And there was a, you know, we were doing 20, not 1200. Yeah. Um, and it was easier potentially to, you know, allocate resources to projects that we determined were high priority. And the other thing is our customers, um, you know, when you're in the private sector, a lot of times you're public facing or you're providing services to customers and they're demanding these security projects get completed. And so that was helping my cause. Um, when it's an agency, you know, they are assuming that we're building security into everything that we're providing to them. And they're assuming we're fixing all security gaps. They're not outright verbalizing that. And so that's not helpful to me, you know. <laughs> do, do they? Are there those opportunities though when you say, okay, Maybe this isn't a security product, but if they're going to put in something new, you, you kind of say, yes. I can build towards it. So yeah. it's, you know, it's just naturally a little more organic. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, we absolutely, we have a very um, mature project management process that has security in the gating process. And so that we're, you know, validating that security is being built in from the beginning. We have a good architecture team that is doing exactly that. They're overseeing every project, making sure that security is being built in. And we have standards in place, too, that has security built in. Um, our problem is all of that legacy. And there's just a lot of legacy applications, systems, um, you know, how how can we get in the schedule of going back and remediating all of that legacy? Yeah, I, I, it was funny. I mean, there was there was some things that I saw, you know, I wouldn't say criticism. People would even look at the seat. I think, well, I don't understand why they're running them. Why don't they just cut over to something else? And it was just, and I was like, yeah, I see that all the time. And even when, even in the private sector, it's, I push, you know, say so sometimes, okay, well, you know, if you're exchanged, you know, 28, 2008 server, it's down, probably time to maybe cut it over, maybe go to Office 365. And they say, that sounds great. And then a month later, it still hasn't been done. It's just because it's not that easy in IT just to rip and replace all the time right. as much as we think it is, even when it's improving security. So it's yeah. how do you add that value into it down the road? So strategically, how do you look at the long term when you have, I guess, you know, I would, I would 
you know, my impression from a government agency side, you have a lot of different, uh, well, not just different constraints you might find yeah. in the private sector. It could be administrative changes, budgetary changes. That seems like it can be a tough thing to navigate. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to, um, so for us, we've adopted the CIS 20 critical security controls. And so control number one and two is know what hardware is on know your network you and know what software is <laughs> on your network. And so, you know, my feeling is you kind of have to have kind of that inventory and that roadmap. And so that you are looking at, you know, SQL 2008 before, you know, it gets to end of life so that you have that planning in place. Um, but you mentioned, you know, constraints. One of our constraints is that the funding lives with the agency and the hardware lives on our network. And so, you know, trying to negotiate with the agency to get that plan in place um, and to get it prioritized appropriately to get those funds to upgrade those systems. Um, and then it's like you said, it's not just a purely technical thing either. It's we have to test those applications and make sure they're going to work. And some of them aren't. And so some of them might have to be, you know, rewritten or they need some updates or whatever. Um, and so there's just all those nuances that come into that. Yeah. Well, you talked about, you know, the standards too, but one of the things that we're certainly seeing that's that's coinciding with with that is is uh, some of the compliance issues that organizations are trying to adopt, and then using things like NIST CSF or critical controls, NIST eight hundred, whatever it is that they're trying to apply to some compliance framework. You know, as a state, how you know with with things that are coming online like you know GDPR in Europe, California has its privacy law. We know Colorado's trying to put some stuff. How is your involvement with that from a state agency side to the private sector? Um, that's a great question. So sometimes the lawmakers come to us and say, hey, we're thinking about passing this new law. Um, what do you think of it? And can you give us some input? And can you help us make it better? And that's ideal. Um, but a lot of times they don't come to us. And so it's no different being us than it is being private right. sector. The law gets passed, and we have to comply like everybody else. Um, so you know, we hope that we have those relationships and they think to come to us. But that doesn't always happen. But yeah, I mean, it's it's like any other entity where you kind of have to keep your ear to the ground. You know, there's a new version of NIST that's coming out. Um, and so you want to kind of keep ahead of what are those changes going to be and how are we going to apply those to our policies to make sure we're compliant because, you know, all of these federal entities who provide data to our various state agencies are going to come and audit us and they're going to audit us according to that new revision. And so we just have to do like everybody else does and kind of anticipate what's coming, look at our, you know, what are our policy gaps and then what are our technical gaps and try to figure out how do we bring things up to, you know, up to that latest revision or version or whatever. While competing with all the priorities of 17 yes. state agencies. <laughs> yes. So it's a lot. And so if you think about how do you roll all these things in yeah. there, um, and, and that's what my staff says to me. Well, I thought this was number one priority. Why isn't getting it done? Why isn't it getting yeah. done? And I'll take them out. And we used to have this on Butcher paper out on the okay, hallway and now we've got it's technology yeah. now we've got a screen out there where it displays in a rolling status all of the projects that are going on and it's like well all of these are number one too because these are customer driven you know agency driven so yeah it's it's a lot how, how do you i guess kind of manage that from a 
organizational aspect. The one thing I've always looked at, at some of the roles I've done as a CISO or working with other CISOs, it's, it's strategic and tactical and technical. It's, it's a lot at the same time. So we have to have project management skills, understand the technology of what's realistic. But how do you marry those things that can be complementary initiatives versus things that could be conflicting? Like, do you really like yeah. write them down? Or? I know. Well, I really have to rely on the technical competency of the people that work for me mm. um, because I, you know, I've got to be more strategic. And that means that I lose my technical skills. And so I've got individuals who work for me that I can go to and say, you know, I'm going to have to turn this over to you. You're going to have to figure out the solution. Or can you please tell me what the solution might be? Tell me what we need so that I can factor that into the budget or the planning or whatever. Um, so it's it's very much a, it's a group sport, um, a team sport. Um, the other thing is I really have to spend a lot of time talking to my peers um, so the chief technology officer, the chief operations officer, um, and then, you know, obviously the chief information officer whom I report to, um, all of us have to be kind of in lockstep um, and have to be very, you know, have ongoing dialogue because I want to make sure that their projects aren't going to adversely impact my projects. My projects won't adversely impact their projects. And there's always going to be that conflict because their projects have to do with open connectivity and my projects have to be with filtered connectivity, you know. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, it's just, it's got to be an open dialogue all the time. Well, that, you know, I'm going to throw up a softball to you, but I mean, that's that's the one thing that I think after, you know, close to 70 episodes of the podcast that, that I think that's been, you know, my understanding from talking to a lot of folks is that we need to focus more as an industry too on communication skills. Like the, yes. the, being able to communicate per, person to person yes. is as important than the bits and the bytes. It really is. And I think, you know, there are a lot of CISOs who do their job 100% remote, um, who work for maybe a global international company that, you know, they do their job remote and it works. But for me personally, the way that I operate, I need to be face to face. You know, I, even if I work one day at home, I don't feel like I've been productive because I haven't been able to discuss something face to face. Um, I think relationships are where it's at and communication and listening. You know, if I can listen to what somebody tells me their priority is, then I can frame it back to them in how I'm supporting their priority. Um, so to me, it's just you've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to listen. listen you've got to be able to tailor the message um, and put it in language that they understand. Well, with that, too, you know, when, you, when you are talking to folks that maybe aren't technical, that are more business-oriented, What's some of the language that you use? I'm seeing a lot of people focus on, you know, whether it be metrics, risk. How do you frame that in their in their language? Yeah, it, it, that's, again, about listening to what is important to them. And when they say, hey, it's these three systems, then I talk about how, you know, what we're trying to do is prevent any cyber attack that could impact the availability of that system. Mm -hmm. We don't want it to go down because it's critical to your business. Um, preventing any kind of a cyber attack or intrusion that would ruin the integrity of that data because that data has got to be integrity, you know, it's got to have integrity because it's so critical to your business. Or uh, preventing any cyber attack or attacker activity that would compromise or steal or expose that data because that data is so very sensitive because it's your customer data. And so when I kind of frame it back to them and when I talk specific about their systems um, and show that I care about 
the systems that they care about, I use the names of those systems, then they start to relate to me. It's like now we're speaking a same the same language, and then they can start to kind of understand how, oh, yeah, cyber attack would be bad because you're right, it could take my system offline. Um, and I'm in a really great advantage or advantageous uh, position right now because I can kind of use the CDOT example as, you know, an example. Like, you know, here's what it did to CDOT. It took their ability to issue purchase orders um, away for a period of weeks. And imagine if that happened to your business, how crippling that would be if it happened during this time frame, for example. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you're yeah, right. Never waste a crisis. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And so, yeah, you just kind of have to listen to what's important to them and then be able to frame it back to them. And then they'll jump on. They totally understand. And cyber's in the news so much and, you know, cyber attacks and um, data exposures and all of that type of thing to where they understand it's important. They just need to be told how it applies to them. Sure. And one of the things certainly we've seen, um, you know, more is like, you know, the election and more things going electronic is that a concern for the state, you know, from a state agency perspective of you know, how we're going to navigate, you know, adopting that technology? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the Department of State or Secretary of State's office is responsible for all of the election systems, but we partner very, very closely with them. Um, and they, it's actually to their credit, they reached out to us and said, hey, you know, let's be partners in this and gave us kind of a view into, you know, here's what the election process looks like. Here's how the systems are connected or aren't connected. Here are the controls that we have in place. Here are how we audit. Um, and so it very much becomes, you know, a methodology of you have to really dig into how they're architected. You have to really dig into who has access. You have to think about how they're segregated. I mean, it's it's very much applying all of those standard security <laughs> controls. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how are you testing it? And how are you red teaming it? And all of that. Yeah. Um, but it's also very much, you know, a partnership. It's like who owns this piece, making sure they're doing their controls over that piece, who owns this piece. Um, it's education and awareness. Um, in the last election, one of the things that we had to kind of make people aware of is that there wasn't as much risk as the general public thought there was. Mm. And so, you know, the general public has this idea that you can hack into the election systems and change the votes. Yeah. And that's just not the truth. Um, and so we had to make people aware that that is not the risk that we're fighting here, but here there are some risks mm -hmm. and here's what they are. Um, and so part of it was education and awareness as well. Yeah. So, so it's again, going back to communications and messaging. So even getting to the public to say, yeah, the Russians are crime calling all through the wires. There's just data redundancy and backups that are probably <laughs> an issues that goes back to that availability. Yeah. Um, which again is an unsexy way of talking about cybersecurity and risk management. It's just yeah. the availability. You've mentioned that yeah. A, a number of times, you know, when we talk about confidentiality, integrity, and availability, the uh, the I and the A often get neglected in that, and right. they have to be treated equally. So. Yes, yeah, because we're seeing so much attacker activity. Just, I mean, it's just constant on the internet, and availability is probably the one that is happening the most, and it's not getting, you know, it's not getting the press. So you might be 
offline, your application might be slow. Um, it might go down and you don't even know why. Um, but that's, that's not what's making the news. Yeah, and we should pretty much just all assume our, our, the rest of our data is out there all the time. That that's diminishing returns. Yeah. yeah, you know, from from a state agency perspective, when you kind of without you know giving away too much of the secret sauce, but what are, what are some of the you know critical systems that that keep the lights on? I mean, that's always when I go into organization. Yeah. I say, you know, it's not so much of what keeps you up at night. That's that's kind of a cliche question, but it's like, yeah. what what are the critical systems for business operations? So on, on a in a I know you have a lot of competing, yeah. you know, it's part of nature, but what are, is it email? Is it web applications? What's the, yeah. the juice? Well, we define two categories of systems that require our highest level of attention. So one is critical. So that's anything that is mission critical to the business that keeps them operational. So if you think about the finance systems, that's critical. If you think about email, that's definitely critical. Um, so anything that's keeping the agency operational. Um, but then we also have an even higher categorization, which is called essential, and that's anything with a life safety component. So if you think about public safety and like Department of Corrections, those are two that really, you know, the public safety systems, if you think about a state patrol officer who pulls over a car, who quickly is able to run license plates through a system and know potentially who he's dealing with, know if the car is stolen or know if it's a match to something. Um, if that system goes down and the and the officer gets out of the car and goes up to that car without that knowledge, that could be a life safety issue. Um, same with like Department of Corrections. If you've got offenders and they have, you know, medication requirements that, you know, every four hours or something like that, and that system goes down or doesn't have integrity and you miss a dose of medication, um, that's one example of where it could potentially become a life safety issue. And so there's just, there's a lot of those types of systems. I think we've got somewhere between 120 and 150 either essential or critical systems that we prioritize and that those are the systems that we have, you know, disaster recovery plans in place that we do more assessments over, that we make sure that we have the right controls and that, you know, we have specific um, objectives about making sure that those are online or that there's a, you know, a redundant availability um, for those systems. Yeah. And when you start looking at cloud architecture, I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're many years into the, the, the term cloud and whether it's infrastructure or software, do yeah. you see advantages for that for your agency or maybe other as a CISO, irrespective of where you are, is, is something that can really be leveraged well? Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, one of the things that I love about the state of Colorado is we consider ourselves to be a cloud first state. And so we look at every opportunity and every new project, you know, we say, can this be a cloud service? And, you know, some are going to be no, um, but many are going to be yes. And so we feel like there are great efficiencies in you know, allowing somebody else maybe to manage that infrastructure or that platform or that software or whatever. Um, even our email, um, we're a Google state. And so it just, it gives me a lot of comfort to know that, you know, somebody else is in, is in charge of the availability, the integrity, and the confidentiality of that platform. And, you know, I can focus on the things that I have controls control over, um, and I can improve my security there, but I'm not in charge of the whole thing. Um, 
so to me, you know, I think I think there's a lot of efficiencies we can capitalize on by strategically adopting those services that can bring, you know, kind of some security value there. Are there are there some some downsides to that equation though too that people should factor in? I mean, it, there's no perfect scenario. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have seen issues where there's been data exposure because we had like a folder configured incorrectly, um, so it should have been configured for only a specific work group to be able to see the content, but instead it was public. Um, And so we do have to remember that there are, you know, the cloud service provider can't do all of the security for us, right? We still have an obligation too, and we may have to factor in new types of tools or new types of disciplines that we didn't have before to, um, to make sure that we are appropriately securing and not just assuming that it's being secured. Yeah, I think that's one challenge I've seen with a lot of the cloud stuff. Um, I've kind of just dived in deeper from saying, from okay, let me, let me start from a architecture and implementation side and then uncover the security things. And it really felt that I was back to when I started in the early 90s. There's a lot of stuff yeah. to learn. It's a whole new discipline. Um, yeah. It's it's not uh, an easy cutover. So when you look at training and developing staff, how do you kind of go about and do that? Do you have to budget for that? Are you making hires? Where, where do you identify and kind of procure that staff? Yeah, so we're kind of trying to think through all of that right now. So a lot of it we've done internal training, but I'll tell you, um, when you use on-premise system administrators to configure infrastructure in the cloud, it's not a one-for-one match. I noticed that. (laughs) Yeah, and um, there are mistakes that can be made that can be very, very costly. Um, And so you really have to put a lot of thought into, you know, we need – we need a cloud architect, we need cloud engineers, we need the right skill sets, we need people trained. Um, We've actually got a budget request in front of the legislature to hire two cloud architects, two cloud engineers next year. Um, So, you know, we are very much aware that um, depending on what you're adopting, you need specific skill sets that match that. Yeah. And, you know, when, you know, every CISO has this role or directors of IT or security, it's, you know, where do you find those people? Are you finding, you know, one of the things that attracted me at least to, to Colorado too, is that there is a good talent pool here. Mm-hmm. Um, are you finding that the same for your recruiting efforts? It's really hard. Um, you're competing so, with private sector too. Yeah, yeah. So last year, one of the things that made the CDOT incident um, so complex is that we had lost almost all of our firewall personnel right before that occurred. Um, they were all recruited away for, for the private sector for, you know, higher salaries than what we could pay. Um, and probably easier jobs too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so we had to kind of get creative in um, how we attract talent. So one of the things that we did is we started something called a veterans transition program, which is paid internships for for military veterans um, at a couple of levels. One is those who have experience in cybersecurity that we feel like, you know, can come in and really, you know, augment our staff. Um, The other is for individuals who have, you know, maybe a demonstrated aptitude in cybersecurity who can come in and kind of learn and we can train. 
Um, in both cases, they bring great knowledge, great skills, great energy, um, and discipline that we need. Um, they have really, we've had this program operational for about um, 18 months now. And what we found is we have hired directly from that some amazing candidates who have um, really, I, I would say, brought the level of our team up a level. Um, and so we're, you know, plus we're finding individuals that they already have developed or have a, not developed, but demonstrated um, a desire for public service, um, you know, based on their military careers. And so now they're transitioning into a government position. It seems like a good fit for them. Um, and in some cases, so I can think of our very first veteran transition um, individual who um, he actually found his dream job in the private sector. But when he first came with his resume, what he had on his resume for his military skills didn't really translate to private sector. And so we kind of created, we kind of filled that gap for him to where, you know, the experience that he got with us translated much more um, you know, easily on paper into what his next role was going to be, and he was able to make a transition into private sector. So we're kind of, you know, we've developed this veterans transition program as a pipeline for ourselves, but also as a way to enable veterans to kind of transition more easily into whatever their next um, career goal is. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Debbie, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find you? Online? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at Twitter, I'm at Debbie Blythe, um, or definitely online. Um, you can find me at the state of Colorado, Deborah Blythe. Okay. I've seen the website. It's, it's kind of cool that, yeah, let's say it's, it's that the state of Colorado has kind of uh, adopted IT and security so much as being part of the brand almost. Yes, absolutely. Very cool. Well, I'll be sure to put all that in the uh, show notes and links to everything. So thanks again for the time today. Sure. Thank you. It was nice talking with you. Pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.